It's time for JT the Brick. Big boy radio. And we're going balls out. Are you with me on this? Do me a favor and surprise me today. Shot down the field. Wide open Adams. Has it at the 20. 10-yard line. Goodbye. Touchdown Raiders. You can't say they're rebuilding with Max Crosby, Chandler Jones, and Devontae. Down to five on the play clock. Gets the snap. Hands off to Jacob. Stutters to the right. Burst through the whole 20. 25-30. He's off to the races. Here in Seattle, nobody's going to catch him. 25-20, 10, full game. JT the Brick. You don't bring in Jimmy Garoppolo if you're rebuilding. I want to go get a ring, get the silver and black back to where it should be. I am ready to go. Wake up this town. Did I miss anything? Call and let's see what you got. And now, woo, here's JT the Brick. JT, as we continue final hour of the week, I call it my bucket of Modelo's hour here. Thanks to Modelo. Proud partner of the show, Steve Gomez, and the entire crew at Modelo is going to have this show busy during football season. We're going to do some remotes. We're going to do some live radio remotes with the Black Hole. Love how I get two sponsors in at once here at the top of the hour, the Black Hole. Go to theblackhole.com. Become a Black Hole member. So when you see me on these radio remotes as we get ready for the regular season, you'll be a new member of the Black Hole that works side-by-side with Modelo. Perfect radio partnership, so we got a lot of that coming up in the regular season. And the reason is there's a bunch of national games. So we got a Monday night game, and we got Sunday night games. So what I'm trying to do is find a way to get it going, get it going on a Friday. So when Gorilla Rilla flies in or, you know, the, all the famous Raider fans, Senor, my good friend Violator, everyone involved with this, Mark Jones and Cisco and Steve Gomez, our whole team with Modelo and the Black Hole, can put together something legitimately big because I like to do remotes where people show up, all right? I like to do remotes where people are there living and breathing, drinking Modelo's, having a good time, and celebrating the Raider Nation, and we're going to make sure that we do that for you this year. So as I said on Tuesday earlier this week, I had the honor of interviewing Reggie Jackson, and the connection with Reggie Jackson and myself It's just the fact that he was one of my heroes. My biggest hero was Thurman Munson, the catcher for the Yankees, but Reggie was right there. I grew up in the heyday of Reggie with the Yankees in 77 and 78, 12 years old, 13 years old. The highlight of my life as a sports fan, the highlight of my life was the 77, 78 Yankees and being engrossed in that and loving it and being a part of all of that. So Reggie and I have been talking since his documentary came out. And he's been at a bunch of Raider games. He's tight with Mark Davis. And Reggie said that he was going to talk to me after he talked to Howard Stern, Michael Strahan on Good Morning America, and he followed up with it. So on Monday, he texted me and said Tuesday would work the day of the All-Star game. And I had the opportunity to talk to him for about 45 minutes. And we want to play it now because of his impact, how important he is, diversity, which is really the reason he wanted to do this. He always is now getting back at this stage of his life about what he saw as a young boy, civil rights, uh, the racism that he had to deal with, and some of his friends and other icons. And that's where he's at at this stage of his life, on top of a lot of business opportunities, including the relaunch of his candy bar, which is one of the greatest candy bars ever made. So here is my conversation with Mr. October, Reggie Jackson. It's a pleasure to welcome in Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, coming off the documentary, and a beautiful time to talk to him this summer. Reggie, thanks for a little bit of time. How are you? I hope you're enjoying the summer. JT, I always uh, enjoy uh, uh, talking to you on the air. And um, 
makes me feel good because I'm doing my best to listen to you at night all the time, trying to figure out what's going on, what's happening. But uh, it's a good relationship, and uh, enjoy being with you. Thank enjoy you. being able to take, uh, talk to you on your show. You always got great questions. I really appreciate that, and uh, you know how much you mean to me and our connections over the years. And I want to jump in with the documentary. I remember in the beginning when you did some interviews, you were a little bit concerned about the potential control or your voice in it. I thought it came out fabulous. Now that you've had some time to sit back and look at it, how do you feel about the documentary, and what type of reaction are you getting from fans? Well, to be honest with you, I think that the documentary came out great. Um I like the way it was presented, and I like the uh, uh, the work that they did to put it together. Um, I will say that I was uh, very disappointed that I couldn't get uh, one of my greatest friends of all time, Franco Harris, involved. He had just passed away. Uh, he flew down to uh, Houston, and I wanted him in the move in the uh, dock for about forty seconds, thirty seconds. And I couldn't get him in. Mm-hmm. And it just broke my heart. Um, you know, it was a very emotional time because he passed away in November and just just really impacted me quite a bit. I was supposed to go out to the uh, the, the honoring of the retire- number of retirement. And it, uh, it it was tough when, when I couldn't get him in. And there was another guy that impacted my life when it comes to diversity and, and assisting with minorities and helping me make change. Um, Rick Hendrick, uh, the, the NASCAR guy, the automobile dealer, one of the largest automobile dealers in the country. And he's, I partnered up with him on a few deals and it's been, you know, really fabulous. And, uh, it's gotten minorities involved, uh, in the automobile world of dealerships. I'm a car, uh, not, uh, uh, gearhead, if you will. Um, and I got involved in a couple of automobile stores, uh, Chevrolet, Honda and Cadillac. And so I'm really, you know, proud of that, but I couldn't get Rick Hendrick involved in it either. And we flew to to North Carolina. Um, and like I said, uh, uh, Franco flew down to Houston, just maybe, I don't know, man, it was maybe Mm -hmm. a month or two before he passed away because I talked to him the day he passed. He was perfectly fine. He went to sleep and never woke up. Yeah, out here, our friend Phil Villapiano, who's a great friend of mine, he told me the same thing. He he flew out, he was there at the service, and he talked to him the day passed. So it yeah. sent shockwaves to everybody. What a tremendous loss. And I'm going to get into a little bit later on in our conversation some of the other people that had such a big impact on your life that are no longer here. But, Reg, I want to start off, if we can, with your early years and your dad's work ethic. That really jumped out at me. The racial times that you were living in, watching your dad go to work and building this type of work ethic for you that ended up in business but mostly in sports as a, as a unique elite athlete. Take me back to when you were 8, 9, 10, 11 years old and getting up every day and the impact that your dad showed me about how to go to work. Well, you know, my dad was really a guy that uh, if you got up in the morning and you didn't go to school, uh, you had to be sick. Um, and if and if you weren't in bed and you needed to go to school, because if you could get up and move around and watch TV and maybe play ball or, or, or throw the ball up against the wall, then you were well enough to go to school. So you had to be sick in bed if you didn't go to school. 
Uh, and if you stayed home, you had to work because he had a tailor shop uh, right downstairs below where we lived, and you had to help out or, unless you were bedridden. So yeah. in my first, in, in, in all my school years, even in high school, let's say in high school especially, that, that I can remember, um, I would go to school and be absent one day a year Two days a year would be a huge not time not uh, for for missing school. So you went to school, man, and um, you came home. You did your work. Uh, you did your homework, and then you took your school shoes off. You took your school shoes off, and you took your school clothes off and hung up. Um, and and because your your school's clothes, you had one pair of Sunday shoes, and you wore your Sunday shoes to school. <laughs> wow. You know, football back then, you mentioned Franco. Your early years playing football in high school before an injury along with baseball and track and field. Is that where the passion came for you for football, playing it at such an early age and playing it at a high level? Take us back to what it was like to be a football player at a young age. You know, JT, for me, back in those days, it, it gave me a chance. I was raised in racism uh, in the neighborhood where I was uh, I was going I was going home one day on on a bicycle that belonged to one of my friends because I lived about a mile and a half away from him and he said Reggie take my bike so I rode his bike down the road and all of a sudden his stepfather was coming up the road and uh, he noticed that the bike I was on belonged to his son Ronnie and so he said to me boy I want you to take that bike get off it and walk it back, get off that bicycle. And I, I never, I, I never had felt that before to where somebody was concerned um, about my race. And I was riding a bicycle. That was his steps on. He made me get off it and walk it back. Um, I think football for me at that time, uh, JT, to tie that together gave me a chance to have physical exertion and 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 get out and just exert myself if you will uh, maybe run into somebody or tackle to somebody or deliver a blow uh, which which allowed me to release some of the anxiety I had from being not able to swim in the neighborhood pool in Glenside uh, where families you know went to, to have fun. Mm-hmm. And not being able to play in the Little League All-Star game because I was black. We were playing a team from Florida. I was the best player on the team, but I wasn't able to play because they feared if if uh, I had a slide in the home or in the second base or something, and something would start. Um, and at, you know, 11, 12 years old, that kind of stuff was just weird, uncomfortable, strange for a young kid like myself to, to deal with. So football gave me a way to to kind of express myself and get some of the anger out. Reggie Jackson's our guest. How how did you refrain from being an angry young boy and an angry young man and have the balance in your life to build all these bridges at an early age with the racial tones that were surrounding you? You know, I, I, I don't think I did handle it very well. I, was, I stayed very quiet. Um, I didn't really say much. And, um, you know, I, I, I did get in fights. Um, I had a couple of buddies that were Jewish 
and they would call them uh, names and that kind of stuff. And I'd beat the kids up and then take them into the principal's office and say, he called this guy a negative name or he's, uh, he, 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 you know, called me a or I'd beat him up and then take him to the, to the principal's office mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, you know, and just make them let them know what was going on. So, uh, I don't know if I bridged the gap very well, but I did it. Did it? I did get into a few fights from time to time. How do you end up at ASU with all the travels before that, and you know your local life and your early years? Because a lot of colleges were interested in you as a football player. So, what was going through your mind in tenth, eleventh grade? You know, looking at notes or letters and wondering where you were going to go, the next step of your athletic journey. How did you get out to ASU? Well, a, a lot of times, you know, you get letters from Duke University, you get letters from Oklahoma University, and I got letters from Michigan and Penn State. Um, you know, I, I I was not going to go to uh, to Duke. I wasn't going to be the first uh, colored player. Uh, that's what it was called in those days, colored player, to go to Oklahoma. Um, I just wasn't going to do that. I did consider going to Notre Dame. Our Parsegian was the coach then. Penn State um, was a Paterno. And then uh, uh, Woody Hayes was at Ohio State, and Shem Beckler was up at, uh, up at Michigan. Um, my high school coach was from Pittsburgh, and he was good friends with a guy named Frank Cush. Mm-hmm. Frank Cush was out in uh, Arizona State. Arizona State had a great baseball program. And so the football enticement for me, uh, I got a scholarship out there, was, was impacted. My decision was impacted because I could have an opportunity to play baseball there. Little did I know when I got there, JT, they had never had a black player on the team. <laughs> they had one guy that was a mix. Um, but they didn't have, uh, never had a colored player, uh, on the team. And so the first time I tried out, um, you know, Bobby Winkles was the coach there. He was from Arkansas and, um, he he never questioned me whatsoever. He said, Reggie, let me see if I can talk to Frank Cush and see if you can uh, play, um, you know, on the, on the baseball team and miss spring football practice. And so uh, they had made a deal that if I could maintain a 3.0 average and I could get to uh, play both sports and skip spring ball. Um, I never did skip spring ball. I played baseball on the off days and we had football practice on the other, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, all the way up to Saturday off on Sundays. But it's three days a week I played football and three days a week I played baseball. And um, one of the guys in the dorm uh, bet me $5 I couldn't make the team. And he said, because they've never had a black player on the team. Fast. So I bet the guy 5 bucks, and I wound up obviously being a winner. So more of my conversation coming up with Mr. October. Reggie Jackson brought to you by Resorts World. Hey, we team up for excellence. Reggie Jackson is excellent right here on Raider Nation Radio.
Now I'm fascinated with the minor leagues because the Major League Baseball draft at that time, selected by the Kansas City Athletics, that's your journey. That's your path. That's not your choice. Not going number one, going number two, not going three or four. You could have went from the Mets to anywhere around the country, and you end up with the Kansas City Athletics. How did that have such an impact on the arc of your life? Life, not just as a baseball player with the selection to go to that organization at the time. Well, what I'll tell you about my draft is uh, in college I was dating a Mexican girl. And um, uh, Juanita Campos mm-hmm. and the Angels, the uh, Angels, I forget what you call it, but they were like the overview of, of uh, alumni um, Arizona, the Sun Devils, not Angels, the Sun Devils alumni, okay, mm-hmm. um, were talking to the football coach and baseball coach about me dating um, out of my race. And so my middle name is Martinez. I speak Spanish. And so, and I was, you know, in the process of dating this lady and a uh, young girl, and we were going to get married, et cetera. And Bobby Winkles, the coach, came to me and he said, Reggie, you know, some of the alumni are complaining about you uh, dating a, uh, a Mexican girl. Uh, as a matter of fact, the guy's name is uh, Guerrero. And I said, well, you know, we're going to get married, so he's going to have to get used to that. And the baseball coach said, well, I can tell you that the Mets want to draft you number one. You're head and shoulders above anybody else. But they're not going to draft you because they think you'd be create social issues in New York. And I went like, well, you know, I can not know what to tell you. My middle name's Martinez, and we're going to get married, and that's that. So I was not drafted number one uh, by the Mets. Um, they picked a guy named Steve Chilcott, who was a catcher mm-hmm. from Riverside, and he never really made it. I wish I would have met the guy. I never met Steve Chilcott. But um, I wound up going to the A's, and uh, it worked out pretty good. Absolutely. Reggie Jackson joins us. Reggie, back to the documentary. The Birmingham years really got to me in Birmingham, Alabama, and the conversations with your dad and the inability to go out at night with your teammates and where you lived and who your roommates were, and then the pressure to get out of the minor leagues to start a big league career. Looking back, how did you deal with the racial elements of that time in Birmingham, Alabama, with what was going on in society and focus on athletics? You know, I think my my dad was really important because we talked almost every day. Um, You know, my mom, I stayed in touch with her. My parents got divorced at a very young age, but I stayed close to both parents and uh, both parented me, if you will. Um, And I had an older brother, uh, Joe. Uh, who's who's still still alive and um, just a fantastic fantastic guy, military guy, uh, very organized, and was always trying to get me to make sure I did the right things, and uh, was very in- influential in my baseball career at a young age because there was so much racism in the South. When I went to Birmingham, it was just a couple of years later. I was there at sixty seven, and in sixty four they had. Uh, um, murdered the four little girls in the church, black mm-hmm. girls. And they never really even caught those guys because they were with the Klan up until, you know, like 2008, 9. Um, and this was back in 67. 
Um, you know, but I had really good support from family. Um, I had great coach there named Johnny McNamara and the guys on the team, Duncan, Joe Rudy, Raleigh Fingers. Uh, they were really important uh, in my career, a guy named George Lazarique. Um, also, Johnny McNamara, the manager, really took care of me. They wouldn't, uh, you know, we drove on the road and went to Montgomery and would go to Knoxville, Tennessee, and Macon, Georgia. Uh, they would have to go in first to see if they would take me and see if I could stay in the hotel. So we went to, to Knoxville, you know, the first trip trip we made, and uh, we went in and see if I could get in the hotel, to get into the hotel. And when I got in the lobby, the guy said, well, the n- can't stay here. And it just, you know, you just felt rotten and miserable inside. And uh, we went back out on the bus, and John McNamara uh, took the bus and said, we're going to find a hotel that Reggie can stay in or we'll sleep on the bus. And so we drove down the road, and guys would go inside uh, and, and, and see if I could go in. And uh, I remember that Gil Blanco was a pitcher. He was about 6'5", left-hander, and he was, he was Mexican. But he would go in and see if I could stay in a hotel, and if I could, uh, we'd get out. And if not, we would uh, just keep going down until I found a, another place. And the same way with food when we ate on the road because the – the bus rides would be 14, 15 hours sometimes, 10 to, 10 to 15 hours. And uh, if I couldn't eat in the, in the, on, the, on the road in the restaurant, it would, the manager would get the food brought out. We'd eat on the bus and keep moving. Incredible times. Uh, Reggie Jackson's our guest. Reggie, before you played for Charlie O'Finley, were you aware of him? Because I, I want to know when you're in the system and you're going through the minor leagues, when was the first time the name Charlie O'Finley became a name you were aware of, knowing the possibility that when you were going to connect with him and he was going to be the owner of the athletics and you were going to hunt, have to play under his guidelines and especially the financial guidelines going forward? Uh, I never really paid attention to that. Um, I was a young kid, and um, if I could play in the major leagues, I was going to go to any major league team. I would just be honored uh, to get selected by a team. Um, I had never really heard much of Charlie Finley uh, in my youth, and I was you know, 19 years old when I got drafted, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was in high school and and uh, elementary school, you know, my favorite player was Willie Mays and Jackie Robinson and Duke Snyder and uh, Sandy Koufax. Those are the guys I rooted for and, um, you know, thought about, wanted to be like, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I didn't really know much about Charlie Finley. I, I never really heard of him because we didn't really follow the American League when I was young because they didn't have – they didn't have hardly any black players. Right. The black players first came to the national league. And so you followed Bernie Banks and Billy Williams and, and, uh, you know, Wes Covington and, and those guys, um, you followed, uh, Mays and Aaron and, and those guys. And it was just, you know, the way of the world. I didn't really think about the A's. I didn't know anything about them. When I got drafted by him, I was excited. And I met Charlie Finley and, he just seemed like a great guy to me. Um, you know, went to his house and ate uh, dinner, 
left, spent the night, got up, had breakfast, and, um, you know, signed the contract. And then I went to Birmingham, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> we went to, uh, I went to the play in the rookie league in uh, Lewiston, Idaho. And uh, I was there for a couple of weeks. I remember going to uh, Yakima, uh, Yakima, Washington. I hit three home runs in the game. And in the last two homers that I hit, it was snowing. It was June. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we were try we a place called Tri Cities, you know. And so we we were there, and uh, then we went back to Lewiston, Idaho. I got hit in the head uh, in the game, and they took me to be uh, uh, examined in the emergency room. And they they would not allow me to be admitted to the hospital because I was colored. So the next day, Charlie Finley set a plane up with our pitching coach because um, he happened to be there at that time. Uh, he came up, and they, they took me out of Idaho, and I went down and started playing minor league baseball in Modesto, California. So let's fast forward to the big leagues when you found tremendous success with some of the greatest teammates and one of the greatest teams in baseball history still to this day, the Oakland Athletics, and those memories that you still have today because – Money became an issue for all your teammates and the ability to make what you deserved and make what you deserved at the time. But when you look back at your life in those years, was it the best baseball times considering all those great men and teammates and the winning and the fans playing in that weather in Oakland? When you look back on that, what jumps out at you at the Oakland years, especially the early years? Well, you know, you know, we, we had a great owner. Um, when it comes to understanding talent and picking players, you know, he didn't pay you. Um, and the biggest reason I thought we didn't get paid is because we didn't draw fans. You know, it was cold in the stadium there. There wasn't much going on. They didn't play music or anything like that. Um, you know, but and it seemed like the lights were so far and so high away from the field. They didn't sit right on top of the stadium. We always thought we had, you know, poor visibility there. But, um, you know, it was a place where people just didn't come out and watch the games. Even when we were winning, we had a couple World Series games Mm -hmm. that didn't sell out and things like that. So, um, you know, he got on the wrong side of Charlie Finley really quick because he didn't pay. Not even if he'd had the money, I guess he wouldn't pay either. But was hard to judge him because we had the worst attendance in baseball and we were the best team. So it, it was a little tough to, to, to when you look back, JT, I think, you know, yeah, I could call Charlie Finley a cheapskate or whatever, but you got to realize that we didn't draw people in Oakland and that was a real tragedy. Yeah, it was Reggie Jackson's our guest before we get to Baltimore and the Yankee years with all the racial undertones that were going on in the world at that time, and even before that, uh, can you talk about the relationship, at least with Ali, Jim Brown, Kareem, Bill Russell? What was going on in your life playing and starting to play at this level, knowing that some of those gentlemen at your time or before your time were still fighting for civil rights and were front and center and were some of the leaders that helped you and your mind evolve on all these topics? Well, certainly Kareem uh, and I were are just about the same age. Uh, I think he's 75 or mm-hmm. 76. I might even be a year older than Kareem, or he's a year older than me, one or the other. 
the great Jim Brown was a guy that you looked up to as well because he had a focus on um, diversity way ahead of time. I call it he had a focus on dignity, Uh, and there were so many of the players that, for me, even when I was playing, um, you had to beg for dignity, and it was it was very difficult and I could understand why guys had <clears throat> difficult attitudes that they were tough, hard to talk to. Uh, the conversations with the media were rough because you were, you were never given the, the dignity of being a great player or being a thinker on the field. Uh, it always wound up and saying, Oh, what, what a great, so much great talent this guy has. He's a tremendously talented player. They would very seldom ever say um, he's like a coach on the field. He's like a manager on the field. Um, You know, and so as a black man, you had to fight for that. You know, you know, give me dignity. Don't just talk about the great skills and my great ability. Talk about my mind and my mental toughness and the ability to, uh, be a great leader um, it was very difficult in those times were for a black to be a catcher for a black to be a quarterback for a black to be a a, um, a pitcher mm-hmm. and and strangely you know when I start saying those kind of things it's like wow uh, kids and people really have never heard that but that's the way it was that there was very seldom did you see a black center in the National Football League. Right. So, you know, and, and let alone a black quarterback, that was a huge deal when Doug Williams and James Harris and those guys were playing quarterback. They didn't want Warren Moon to be a quarterback. And so there were some teams that he just refused to play for because they wouldn't give him an opportunity. So those things went on. Uh, JT, um, it's it's a lot of that stuff has been forgotten and just kind of kicked to the curb. A lot of the things that have gone and been seen in my documentary, so many people are saying, gosh, wow, did you really go through that? And I almost want to say, yeah, you son of a bug. <laughs> uh, yeah, I went through it. Um, did, 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 did you think I escaped it? Or did you, you're going to tell me that you really didn't know that went on in the 60s? Um, and so sometimes it, it's painful, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the documentary because it got out and, uh, I have close friends that have, have learned more about me and learned more about sports, more about the game, more about life. Um, and I really have my, 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 my parents, my dad, my brother, Joe, uh, my oldest sister, Dolores, you know, to help me understand and and to get through those difficult times and then some of the the whites that helped me like rudy and bando and duncan and fingers and those guys are right there for me johnny mcnamara Mm -hmm. and you know guy like gene michael with with the yankees george steinbrenner um helped me through a lot of those things so more of my conversation coming up with mr october reggie jackson
Reggie, a few on the Yankee years. I just want to go back to my youth. And when the Yankees got swept in 76 by the Reds, it was obvious to everybody the big red machine was better than the Yankees, and the Yankees were really good. And then all of a sudden, you come in November 29th, right after that. And the rest is kind of history. But I wanted to ask you, because it was really cool in the documentary, how fast was life moving for you at that point with George Steinbrenner, the recruitment to the Yankees, the move to New York, with all that happening in the press conference, when you look back at your entire life, how were you able to handle the speed and the notoriety and the media? Because that seemed like one of the wildest times in baseball history and most unique time in your life from a financial and baseball perspective. Well, you know, JT said a lot of things there. Um, Certainly for me, it was moving at lightning speed, but I, I didn't really see it that way. Um, I saw it as a great opportunity to be associated with the Yankees, uh, to compete with their their past of, of you know with Ruth and DiMaggio and Mantle and the great players that they had on the team at that particular time. Um, I played with Brooks Robinson for one year. Yeah. And I really think that the best defensive third baseman I ever saw was Greg Nettles. And I, and I played with Brooks Robinson. I don't know if Greg, he probably wasn't as good as Brooks. But, um, you know, I got a chance to play with Randolph. And, and a future Hall of Famer that never got into Hall of Fame was uh, uh, Thurman Munson mm-hmm. would have been a Hall of Famer. He was a great offensive player. He was a great catcher. He was a, a great captain and leader on the team. But probably the best hitter. Uh, that I played with, and I played with Carew. Sure, yeah. Munson could really handle the bat, could drive in a run. Uh, He could really do a lot of things. Um, You know, so I I think I played with one of the all-time great pitchers in Catfish Hunter, and another great pitcher that I played with was was Kenny Holtzman that never really got the credit for it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, fingers... Uh, was at least one of the all-time great relievers and uh, and, and just as good as uh, Eckersley. And I, I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't want anyone to take offense, but Mariano Rivera was just, you know, spectacular. Probably the the most perfect baseball player um, that you could be in reference to make mistakes. I mean, this guy didn't make mistakes and was about as perfect of a of a reliever or a pitcher or a baseball player as you could ever be. Um, but fingers, I always thought, was just a tick below or just right there. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, if Raleigh could have pitched one inning, then, you know, he would have he would have been, uh, you know, you know, maybe the all-time greatest rather than have that recognition be be taken on by, uh, by Mariano. But, you know, the players I got to play with, the Hall of Famers I got to play with, um, and, and being with the Yankees and George Steinbrenner, who wanted to do what he could to, uh, to win. It cost didn't matter to him. Uh, what he said didn't, <laughs> yeah. didn't matter. Uh, it was really about putting a champion on the field, and I got a chance to be part of that and be you know, one of his guys that uh, that he relied on. So I was very appreciative that um, I could I could be a Yankee for the for that period of time. It was a it was a pleasure. It was an honor. 
Um, I still consider myself a Yankee, even though I'm an Astro now mm-hmm. sure. and Oakland A as well, but, um, and, and a California angel and a Baltimore Oriole. Sure. But, uh, you know, I'm just very grateful for the, the things that happened and the, the, the difficulty of the times were very special. Uh, at the same time, I know that Jackie and, and Hammer and Hank and a, a lot of the black players before me, Frank Robinson and Bobby Gibson, um, Mays and Aaron and Bobby Clemente, those guys went through the same things or worse things that I did. And so... Um, Right. You know, you just learn to respect those guys uh, and the contributions that they tried to make from Tommy Smith to John Carlos to Frank uh, to, to Frank and, and who, you know, I mean, you know, short names, Hammer and Hank and Willie say, hey. And then, of course, uh, the great Muhammad Ali and Kareem and man and, you know, the other guys that that, that fought for equal rights and to be recognized and noticed. Um, all those guys made tremendous contributions uh, without without being militant, without being um, um, arrogant. Um, they just, you know, made a stand. And uh, I'm proud to have learned what I learned about race and to be able to continue on and try to to, to push, to continue to push the ball forward. Uh, the fancy term, rather than demanding dignity, uh, the fancy new term now is diversity. Appreciate you sharing that with us as we wrap it up here. I thought, I recall you were going to be, you're trying to buy a team. It was either the Dodgers or the Athletics back in the day. And I think of diversity issues now with Major League Baseball and where Major League Baseball wants to go with the African-American young player. And just, you know, just the fight for diversity overall. What happened there? Because I thought you would have been a fantastic owner, especially from a business perspective and your great baseball knowledge and play. Well, it, it, it really was a sad situation with Oakland because I was high bidder um, for the A's to the Hoffman family, $25 million more than any other bona fide bid. In writing, um, in, in December of 2004, um, uh, Bud went out and got uh, one of his friends and then got connected with the Fisher family to put up the money and just never presented my offer. Uh, the trade for the A's financially, I call it a trade, um, was $100 million in cash and $40 million of accepted debt. Um, and we had outbid that by $25 million, but it never got in front of the Hoffmans. Um, you know, Bud never presented it. He, he told me he would, and he didn't. Um, and so... Uh, it, it was just a tragedy, just just a just a terrible thing um, uh, for me. Uh, I had a similar opportunity with the Dodgers. Um, you know, some people that didn't think that really happened, but I did have a, a conversation with Peter O'Malley, with John McCaw. His family was uh, Cellular One uh, owners and sold that way back in the eighties. They had Paul Allen. We also had Paul Allen and Bill Gates involved. Wow. And at the time, not only the Dodgers, but we could have bought the National League, those guys. Um, and I never really got an answer from Bud. Uh, I made the mistake of, uh, of, of 
of uh, relying on him to present for me. I should have done it myself. I should have announced it publicly, but I was trying to do the right thing and go about it the right way as to how it was suggested that I go. That was not the right way. Uh, I should have announced um, that I was going to be a buyer and uh, the A's wouldn't be going to Vegas, I don't think. Um, you know, I, I, I still even tried when the A's sold back then. I offered to purchase 10%. Um, and then just a couple of months ago, I offered to buy another 20%. Um, and the number was $300 million for 25%. Interesting. This is recently, Reggie, on the opportunity to save the A's and the opportunity for you, one of the great names in baseball history, to get into the game with an ownership capacity. And it sounds like it's fallen on deaf ears. I can't believe this. Yeah, well, I I don't say uh, to to save the A's just to be a participant. Okay. Um, Because the team now is is worth a billion to a billion five. and I really think that if I'd have been let in the deal, it would add value. You think? You think it would, you? Add, it would add value to the team if they would let me in as as a partner. So, um, yeah, it it would be a great move for diversity, a great move for the game. And if you own twenty or twenty five percent of it, you don't really have any say anyway. <laughs> it's fifty point one. You nailed it. 49, and 49.9, if you're not 50.1, you're not going to, you don't have any say. Well, so. yeah, that that's tremendous information. I appreciate that. Hey, Reggie, I want to thank you for the time. One of the things, last thing on the documentary where I smiled the most was when you were in, out front of your beautiful house with the cars. But then when you finally opened up the rings. I mean, I've been following your whole life, as we've talked about this in our friendship. When you opened up all the rings, and I really saw them, and the last part of this, the newer rings, obviously from the Astros and your involvement with the Yankees, still to this day, so you had all of your old rings, and then the bigger ones started to come out. Reggie Jackson, that's one hell of a ring collection on top of the trophies that you have. So I I really enjoyed that. I wish we saw more of that. That was fantastic. Yeah, I've got five World Series uh, championship trophies that I was uh, uh, involved with as a player, and they were 25000 apiece back in the 70s. Oh. And so I don't know what they are now. Um, I probably, I don't know what I'll do with them. <laughs> I still got all of them. I'm going to keep the 73 and the 77 for my daughter. Maybe we'll sell the others because I won the MVP award in those two. Um, and then I was in 14 all-star games. So I got 14 all-star rings and I've been in 15 world series and been fortunate enough since the Astros just won another one. Uh, I've got 11 winners. I got five as a player I was in six. We lost one. And then I was with the Jeter crowd, um, and the Jeter gang for, uh, five. when I was with the Yankees for 20 some years. And they won five over there, and I uh, uh, got lucky with the with the Astros and fell into that. Um, we lost one series, and then we won another. So we got eleven rings, and for the for the seventy seven ring, Alfor gave me a special ring. I have two seventy seven rings. One has a NY, 
and the other one has an NY with a diamond in the center to represent the five home runs. Incredible. What memorabilia going forward for you, obviously, and your, and your family, and your family deserves that because you have a great family. Reggie, thanks for the extra time here. I'll see you on the sidelines with Mark Davis. You come to Vegas a lot. Anything I can do for you when it comes to foundations, charity work, or whatever in life, it's just an honor to know you and have the opportunity to talk to you this long, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, JT. Um, don't forget the foundation, the Mr. October Foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, you, we can, you go on the Internet and you can make a nice donation. We have a focus on STEM education. We have a partnership with Honda. We have a partnership with uh, Ralph Lauren, Amazon, uh, the Jordan brand, Nike, PepsiCo, and just uh, the Parks Authority and all those people that are very, very supportive of us. And also, you must take a look and start hunting for the Reggie Bar. Oh, it's back. Uh, Real quick, <laughs> I got I got my buddy turned 50, and I gave him uh, a couple of Reggie Bars. He opened it up in front of me, and his jaw dropped. Uh, we got to end on that. How did the Reggie Bar come back, and how proud are you of that? Because uh, my kids tried it. Everybody mm-hmm. loves it. It's one of the best candy bars I've ever had. Yeah, I've had a couple of my friends uh, <laughs> uh, from a guy named Brian who's with me all the time, and another guy, Kyle, works for the Astros, and uh, Brian Shapiro, guys from around the country, man, bring the bar back, bring the bar back, <laughs> bring the bar back. So my buddy Gary, who works for me over here in the cars, and they all kept just pounding on me, and so finally uh, we got involved with, uh, you know, got the charity up front there, and we're involved with uh, the academy down in Houston, where they're going to buy 160 or 70 thousand of the bars as be on, uh, they'll be in stock uh, here in the next couple of couple of. Uh, couple of months and uh it's 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 back you can go on the internet and buy it and uh you can call ryan at uh, mr october fine go to mr october go to reggiejackson.com uh, you can get your candy bars there. It sounds like you got enough to sell a few too, JT. I got a few. I'm running out, but I'm friends with you, so I know I can get them when I need it. Reggie, continue That's to right. leave, leave, uh, lead a wonderful life, man. Just keep, continue to do what you do, and uh, the fans really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate you. Hey, thanks for listening to all of that with Reggie Jackson here. I hope you appreciated it. Now, Reggie's a good man, and Reggie was misunderstood for many years of his life. He was the highest paid athlete in America at one point, and deservingly so, and all the rings. How about the conversation about his rings and trophies, and he's got a lot of cars. I couldn't dive into it. We only had so much time, but with all the cars that he has, and the collection is unbelievable, his real estate, and the fact that he's working with the Houston Astros, that's another winning organization and all those rings that he had. It was great in the documentary. And a quick reminder, go watch the documentary. It's on Prime Video, Reggie. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Sports documentaries, in my opinion, are the wave of the future. That's where we're going. There's a lot of clickbait out there. There's a lot of debate shows. There's a lot of people screaming and yelling at each other. I tell young people in the business all the time, if you're going to get into the business, try to get into the movie side or the television documentary side of the business Because all of it, most of it is fantastic. The Bill Walton documentary I watched this month. Every time I see a new sports documentary on TV, I'm all over it. I just love it. And wait till you see what the Raiders are doing in-house with the Raiders' life, which will be at par or better of all the sports documentaries that are out there. It's going to be that spectacular. 
and it's been in the works for a while. And when you see what the Raiders are doing and Mark Davis is doing with the staff behind the scenes to build up the history of the Raiders, it will blow you away. Higher level of quality than NFL films or anything that you see. So I'm excited when that starts to launch out because I know a, a couple of men and women in that department who do an amazing job. And that's going to be a lot of fun. All right, here's the big deal. Monday, we come back with the Raiders all-time team. The greatest team of all time. We're going to go to the cornerbacks. Cornerbacks. So I'll send out the tweet at JT the Brick. And we're going to rank the starting corners, four of them, and the four reserves. Maybe the deepest group we have, possibly, as we take a look back and try to build on the radio. The Raiders all-time team. Thanks for listening all week, everybody, to Raider Nation Radio. 